What's up? Welcome back. Today on the podcast, I have an incredible story and conversation with John Norris. John is a game warden out of California, and it is an incredible story. He came across illegal grow operations with the Mexican cartel, and he goes into some crazy experiences. But before we get into that, Engineered Sleep, they are a local mattress manufacturer out of Greenville, South Carolina, and they are incredible. I have purchased my last three mattresses from Engineered Sleep, and I absolutely love them. The team at Engineered Sleep, their main goal is making finding the right mattress for you as easy as possible. And that sometimes is the biggest hiccup for anybody to get a new mattress. They don't know where to go. They don't know what they need. And that is what Engineered Sleep does for you. And getting the right mattress for you is really the key to better performance on a daily basis because you're going to be getting better sleep. So stop putting it on the back burner. Reach out to Engineered Sleep. You can go to their website, website engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE10 or go visit them in their showroom in Greenville, South Carolina. Whatever you do, reach out to the team at Engineered Sleep. Go to engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE10. You'll get 10% off your order and you'll start sleeping better. Okay, so John Norris, he is, and I don't want to get into it too much because I don't want to reveal too much of the conversation, um, but he is a game warden out of California. He grew up his whole life wanting to be a game warden, um, and you think about traditional game warden, they're making sure you have the right amount of tags for going hunting, or you have your fishing licenses, and that's kind of how he started his career, but one day he was looking at a river that had dried up and somebody had diverted the water and he was looking into this with one of his buddies. He ends up coming across a legal cartel marijuana grow operation. They were using the water from the river to irrigate the, their grow operation. And this leads into really the rest of his career and what he is currently doing now. He has had run-ins with multiple cartels, multiple grow operations. He's had gunfights. He started the, his own team, take down these cartels. The effects these cartels are having on the environment are something I never would have thought of from the pesticides they use to, to rerouting the water like the first time he got into it. They're setting traps and humans are getting uh, caught in and they're getting killed. Um, these cartels are dangerous. And uh, it's just really amazing to hear how he transformed his career from an, a normal game warden type role to now taking down uh, marijuana grow operations. If you like the conversation, please pass it along. Give us a nice five-star rating on Apple Podcast. But without further ado, here is my conversation with John Norris. Welcome to Live Life in Motion, where the goal is to bring you conversations that give you the power of education, so you can use those tools to optimize your life on a personal and professional level to better yourself, your community, and those around you. John Norris, thank you uh, so much for joining me today. I'm very excited for this conversation and uh, just really looking forward to it. How are you? I'm good, man, and good to be on, Sam, and thanks for having me. Of course, and you know, I find your story 
very entertaining and interesting, but also so important for people to understand what's going on. And uh, like you mentioned before we started, you have a book, The Hidden War, and it's a perfect title because it is hidden and a lot of people don't know about it. And before we dive into all that, I kind of want to give people a background about who you are because you started out as a traditional game warden. And right. If people think about traditional game warden, you're not fighting drug cartels. So right. <laughs> kind of tell me how your career progressed um, getting into being a game warden and then we'll start diving into to what you found and how you developed a team and all that stuff. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting story. It was something that I never predicted or planned. And I guess that's the best things in life when things happen randomly because they're meant to be rather than following, a, you know, a script, if you will. Um, I've always been kind of pretty organized, sometimes OCD, as my buddies like to say, in, in kind of planning the future. And uh, sometimes when curveballs hit you, it's for all the right reasons. And really, the, I think that's the story of, of how I got where I'm at. Um, I grew up, you know, loving wildlife, loving our wildlands and waterways and playing in the outdoors, hiking, fishing, angling. Come from a, you know, big line of conservationists as far as uh, ethical hunters, uh, my whole family's from Montana, you know, military veterans and law enforcement veterans. So um, even though I grew up on the West Coast, primarily in the Silicon Valley of California, um, we had that ethos instilled in us as kids pretty early. So, you know, this was back in the day before video games, before the digital age, before cell phones. So we were, you know, playing in the creeks and running around in the hills of Silicon Valley and the parks and uh, doing more of that than, than doing anything really urbanized, which I think overall was was really the catalyst to, to guide me into the career of being a game warden. Um, and when I met a game warden um, way, way back, uh, in the late 80s, when I was actually a, an engineering student at San Jose State, I had never met a game warden before. I had no idea what the job was, so it wasn't even on my radar of interest. And then uh, met a game warden um, on a winter uh, backpacking trip between semester breaks in the first year of my engineering program and realized I'm doing totally the wrong job. I'm going after the wrong thing uh, because really my spirit's in the wild. So um not that, you know, the engineering school was going bad. It was going great, but I really felt like it, I didn't have the passion for what I was, what I was chasing uh, and immediately changed my major in criminal justice on that winter break to target being a game warden. Um, and in 1992, I was very blessed to uh, be selected off a very, very limited list of candidates. It was pretty, very hard to get hired in limited positions as game wardens in the early nineties. And, uh, Man, it just it was just on fire from there. Um, six, seven month academy in Napa Valley College, then down to Southern California, where I started my first patrol district, uh, Riverside. Um, cut my teeth, you know, dove in deep. That was full of gangbangers from LA coming over into my area of Riverside County and, you know, poaching every imaginable animal with AK 47s and assault weapons and spotlighting and, you know, gill netting fish. And I mean, just, just a train wreck of, of mm -hmm. poaching activity, hurting our wildlife. And uh, that kind of started the career before I finally made it home to the Silicon Valley to, to do traditional work there up until, you know, what yeah. Hidmore is all about. So what was your idea going into it? Say the first few months as a game warden, what, what do you think you would be doing? Well, I thought I'd be doing the traditional stuff. And my thing was, I just wanted to stop wildlife poaching. You know, I wanted to show hunters that I was an ally. I wanted to go reward and interact and, and kind of be, um, you know, brothers and, uh, 
uh, almost, you know, sisters with the folks out there doing it right. I mean, cause that's how I was raised. You know, you never take too many animals. You always respect your harvest. You consume everything you take, or you don't take anything. Um, you pay attention to the seasons. Uh, you don't litter, you don't make a mess out there because our, our wildlife need to be balanced and conservation, meaning ethical and legal hunting actually improves and sustains all of our wildlife species worldwide, but it's a delicate balance. Mm -hmm. And certainly if people are greedy and they take too many, too many animals or they hunt at a season or they, uh, you know, take animals for commercial sale value, which you know, the black market for wildlife sales is, you know, second only to the drug trade right now on the black market worldwide. So Sam, this is one of those things that um, I was very passionate about and felt that being part of what we call the thin green line of wildlife law enforcement, you know, the, the game wardens out there, conservation officers, I could really make a difference on something I'm really passionate about and, and something I really care about. Um, but I thought I'd do the traditional stuff. I thought I'd, you know, be stopping spotlighters, trying to take animals at night illegally and people taking over limits of deer, over limits of fish, destroying stream beds for commercial development and doing it the wrong way. And all that stuff I did for the first, you know, 10 plus years of my career. And I loved it. Um, the challenges, the dangers, I think the, uh, um, I think just the, the diversity of what game wardens have to do is really an unknown entity, you know, in the public eye, at least it was then. And then in 2008, when I was in the Silicon Valley and I was a patrol lieutenant now supervising a squad of uh, seven or eight game wardens in two and a half counties, we, uh, our chief agreed to work with National Geographic Channel and do the first game warden reality show that started this run of game warden reality shows. Ours was called wild justice. We did three seasons of that. And that was one of the most beneficial educational and outreach tools we could have done. And I'm really glad we committed to doing that as much as the challenges were involved with that television series, it really exposed the diversity of what game wardens do, especially in a very diverse and progressive state like California. And all of a sudden you saw people worldwide, military veterans, you know, fighting the war on terror in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, law enforcement officers all over the country, kids from all walks of life, people in careers they just weren't passionate about. Maybe they were lucrative financially, but they weren't passionate about that career. And all of a sudden they're seeing what we're doing on Nat Geo, everything from cartel, you know, cannabis and raids on armed cartel grows to commercial undercover wildlife sales, to traditional patrol for hunting and fishing. And people were blown away. And all of a sudden we had thousands of applicants for the job. Um, it, it really is. And, you know, I, I'm really, it, it's good to see these other shows popping up like Northwoods Law and my, my partner, Lieutenant Wayne Saunders, that I co-host two podcasts with both the Warden's Watch and the Thin Green Line podcast. Um, those shows started later after Wild Justice was such a hit, but Texas and Montana and uh, New Hampshire and Maine now have shows or have had shows that are showing their game wardens in another part of the country, closer to where you're at actually. And it's keeping that Thin Green Line, you know, in the limelight. And that's what we need yeah. because, you know, the number of game wardens is, you know, a tiny fraction of the number of police officers. And as we know, even our police officers are under understaffed right now. Mm -hmm. And that's even getting worse under the current issues we're facing politically and in this great country. So um, the more we could do to do outreach uh, to expand the message, the better. And certainly when I got into the special operations realm of, of cartel cannabis and all the other nasty things they're doing, um, 
that outreach has really become important, especially with Hidmore now in retirement from operations, because it's never been a more pressing issue in the nation. Education and awareness is really everything. What what was the year and talk about the first story or experience that got you to find the first grow up and what led you to it? Yeah, it's a good one. That goes in the Wayback Machine a little bit. And I actually cover that in my first book, War in the Woods, in chapter one. And a really good friend of mine that grew up with all of us uh, in my family, all my siblings, um, was a wildlife biologist working on his master's thesis on uh, threatened and endangered species in a, in a watershed, a watershed called Coyote Creek, which actually just feeds out of Henry Coast State Park, um, California's second largest state park, where I learned to backpack and really met that game warden that changed my life. So this place where this all happened was very near and dear, very special. Uh, and he had been working on a five-year study on steelhead trout, red-legged and yellow-legged frog. All those species are either federally and state listed as endangered species or at least listed as threatened species. That being said, he's studying two creeks for the span of about five years. And on the third year, and I'm going back to 2004 now, he's out starting studies in the spring, mid-April, I believe, and finds one of his creeks completely dried up. And a bunch of debris and, and trash and stuff that's washed down from high, high up in the mountains where this pristine water course kind of starts. And, you know, he had dead fish, dead frogs, everything was dried up. And this was in the middle of, you know, basically the winter runoff when that creek should have been just ripping and thriving. Mm. And because of that, he called me was very alarmed. Um, I was very familiar with his study, not only from the standpoint of biologically what he was doing, but also as being a family friend. And I uh, told him, yeah, we need to go check that out. Someone's diverting the water. There's something wrong up there. And the last thing I ever thought it would be is anything related to, uh, you know, an eco-terrorist foreign invader, if you will, from the cartels of, of Mexico, mm -hmm. you know, in the basically the foothills of Silicon Valley where I grew up. I mean, that is just so, you know, that just doesn't even register for what could be a reality in the West Coast, especially the tech capital of the world. And sure enough, we hiked into that canyon and we found the water diversion and we found where they had dried up and uh, put a check dam and diverted the creek and where the really the source started. And this was like, Sam, this was like two, three miles up into the mountains. So you can imagine when you take a water source that's pristine, that's feeding endangered and threatened species all the way to the South Bay of the Pacific Ocean, and there's agricultural operations using that water There's, that water is being used for drinking for public consumption eventually down you know where it bottoms out in the silicon valley and then all the animals that thrive off it and they're basically diverting it and poisoning it at the source so the impacts to that water source are as worse as they can be mm -hmm. they're kind of on you know it's kind of like you know red alert if you will so we find the diversion. We follow the water line down where they're diverting it. We run into marijuana plants about two feet tall. Uh, they're on both sides of the bank. It is like there's an, you know, I have family and, 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 and veterans, including my father that, you know, served in Vietnam and talk about these nomadic, you know, camps that the, the Viet Cong and the, the, you know, North Vietnamese army would have in the jungle. And that's what this stuff reminded me of um, as I'm seeing this as we're, you know, walking down through this canyon. Um, and then we see growers and they're heavily armed and they're in, you know, battle dress uniforms and they're carrying assault rifles. One's got an AK-47. They both got, you know, big blades and machetes on them. Uh, the other one had a handgun. And 
they definitely did not register as your typical poacher. They weren't a farmer taking water for agriculture illegally or diverting it for a cattle operation. Uh, it was completely out of place. And that was the first time that I physically saw a cartel grower on American soil uh, in our back country, basically destroying our wildlife and waterways and, you know, all of our environmental resources. Were you up there alone? Yeah, I, well, it was me and this biologist and that was it. Um, and that's how we do business typically as game wardens. I mean, we're not going to send in a massive team to check on a potential water diversion, at least not in those days. Um, now it's a little different because most of those water diversions in my old home state of California, back in the Golden State, uh, when you have a water diversion report like that, it's usually cannabis grow related, whether it's a cartel grow, um, a tres what we call a trespass grow that's never legal, or it's a quasi-legal grower on the on the private land side that's taking water illegally from another property or from a natural waterway. And we will not just go in there alone anymore because of the threats involved. Mm -hmm. um, but back then, this just wasn't happening. It wasn't on our radar. You know, we had never worked a cartel grow as an agency. We didn't have regulated cannabis, you know, in California where game wardens were actually now on the forefront of checking for compliance of environmental laws as, as cannabis growers, you know, grow their cannabis, have it documented, legitimately distributed through the market in California. None of that was going on. So I was alone and we were definitely, you know, over our heads, if you will, because I had an assault rifle and I had a pistol and I had a radio and a cell phone. And we were so deep in a canyon that the radio and cell phone didn't work. And I have an unarmed civilian biologist that I literally have been hanging out with as a family friend since second grade. And now I'm going up against two armed growers. And even though my biologist buddy is more than savvy in the woods and can handle his business, um, not the situation you ever want to be in as a law enforcement guy and not have a team around you of like-minded guys, uh, you know, with, with a civilian with you. So that was a, that was no crap moment for yeah. sure. But we were able to, you know, get out of that situation undetected. They didn't see us. They went about their way at checking their plants. Um, they showed tactical savviness just in their demeanor. Um, even though they didn't know we were there and even though they were so far deep in the back country that many, very few people would ever go to, they always had situational awareness, um, you know, kind of, kind of in their behavior, meaning they were always looking around. We call it head on a swivel tactically. They were watching behind them. their six o'clock, like a tail gunner would on our tactical unit, watching uh, their surroundings all the time. They were moving quietly through the grow. When they talked, they didn't talk loud. They whispered uh, when they tended their plants or had to move water lines around or, you know, had to chop something with their little machete knife. They did it deliberately, but they, they didn't, uh, they didn't make themselves too much of a visual target indicator in doing it. They were very careful. And that, um, that was an eye opener. Mm -hmm. I said, this is not your typical wildlife poacher. It's not your typical cannabis grower. These guys don't belong here. They're not from here. And they're showing, you know, tactical proficiency, which told me that there was an element of some military or law enforcement training with these guys and that they had the propensity to violence um, immediately when we saw him. What'd you do next? Uh, the thing was just get out of there. You know, we had to kind of, kind of, and we were, it was straight uphill. It was pretty grueler half mile straight uphill hike to where my, my uh, patrol vehicle was parked and we worked our way out of there quietly. We busted that hill. We didn't say a word till we got to my truck. And then we kind of looked at each other like, Oh crap, mm -hmm. what did we just see? And because from a game warden standpoint, we weren't doing anything in the counter drug work world at all. 
I talked to allied agency task force members and we brought in a task force that worked those type of operations. And that was the first time we embedded with a, um, what, what's called like a drug task force unit was the name of it. And I describe it in depth in the book that comprises a lot of officers from a lot of different agencies targeting just uh, illegal cannabis, you know, methamphetamine, cocaine, narcotics, things like that. Um, and we became kind of the guides for that team to go in and, uh, and eradicate that grow and, and try to deal with the growers themselves. Live Life in Motion podcast is brought to you by Engineered Sleep. Engineered Sleep is a mattress manufacturer and they are based out of Greenville, South Carolina. They have been making mattresses for as long as I can remember, and their main goal is to make finding the quality mattress for you as easy as possible. Um, they have a showroom in Greenville, but you can also visit them at their website, engineeredsleep.com. If you go to their website, use code LIVE10, and you will get 10% off. As you guys know, sleep is the number one thing you need to focus on for good health. And it all starts with your mattress. So stop putting it on the back burner. Go get yourself a mattress from Engineered Sleep and start living a better life. So that y'all did end up cleaning up that grow? We did. We went in. Uh, we raided it about three weeks later. And um, we met a lot of good allied agency partners on that operation, none of who led it. Um, we eradicated that grow. We did not catch anybody when I felt we could have. And I, I saw the lack of the lack of concern to actually apprehend these growers. And really the motivation of the of the task force at the time was to get in, cut the plants, um, destroy the plants, and leave. And really the motivation was based on funding and financing at the time where the DEA through their DCEP grant were rewarding all agencies in California and all the other states based on the amount of of illegal marijuana plants they eradicated. Um, funding was based on plant count. But what wasn't factored in was how dangerous these guys are, how heavily armed they are. The fact that back in Mexico, 90 plus percent of them are classified as deportable felons because they have heinous, heinous um, you know, criminal history lists. And now they're up in America doing a lot of you know damage to our environment, but also a huge public safety threat as well. Um, and I felt that we needed to put some emphasis on trying to arrest these guys and deterring them from doing what they're doing in our, in our state and our country. The other thing that wasn't being done on that mission that really, you know, really blew our minds on the, on the conservation officer front was the reclamation and restoration, the cleanup of the grow site. So we all helicoptered out with catching nobody when we felt we could have with better tactics. And then next behind us, we're leaving this train wreck, this super fun site of uh, fertilizers on the banks. What we didn't know at the time, these EPA banned poisons, these toxics of carbofuran that I talk about very, very uh, in depth in the newest book, Hidden War with pictures of the stuff they have to actually import from Mexico and smuggle across the border to put on the plants, to put in the grow sites, to keep animals and people away. Um, but it's so dangerous um, and such a high toxic, uh, you know, hazmat that EPA banned it from being used in California on legitimate agriculture, banned it from use in the country actually over, over two decades ago. Um, none of that was getting cleaned up. So that waterway that we saw dried up was just going to stay poisoned and all those fish and frogs and anyone drinking that water downstream were going to be negatively affected by that. And uh, that was frustrating. And I knew 
right then that we had now seen the new environmental criminal challenge of the millennium, if you will, moving forward, and that we as game wardens really had to address it as a priority. And we had to address it with new tactics and personnel and, and support from administration with a different mindset, because this was going to be a much harder criminal to stop that was much more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Were y'all able to restore that waterway and the environmental damage? Uh, it, in, within a couple of years, we were. Reclamation cleanup at the time was not on anybody's radar. So I convinced the sheriff's office in Santa Clara County, their marijuana eradication team guys that were brothers and so supportive and believed in the environmental issues as well, that they put up their resources and time with us to go and do that. And we did that on our own. We did that outside of the raid about a year later, and it was our first effective cleanup of a grow site. And I want to say that was uh, late, early 2005, might've been late 2005 that we did that, but it was, uh, it was the start of a trend that would very slowly build momentum, uh, and become something that we would basically make a priority, uh, at least in California. Was this, so after you get done, you know, I guess rating that first grow up, was that kind of the point where in your mind you started developing the team, the marijuana enforcement team, the idea for that team? Very much so. I I saw it as necessary. Um, we were informally working with um, with the Met team in Silicon Valley, um, our our tier one canine handler that you know is highlighted in the book, and you've heard a lot about. And he's I've talked about him on podcasts, and he's certainly uh, you know been on Wild Justice and with that gr- that great canine Phoebe, that superstar <laughs> that that just had that legendary career. Um, Brian and Phoebe were working that stuff with Shasta County Sheriff's office in the Northern part of California. Um, and I would say probably we were two of the most embedded with our local allied agencies of doing that work, but there were, you know, there were some, uh, central California officers embedding with other agencies to do it as well. And, uh, that was just, just an important step, but we were all, we were doing it informally. Um, we were informally part of their team. It wasn't like we were a dedicated member on a task force and we were leaving patrol. Um, but certainly I knew, um, and not so much after that first grow, but after the second grow we did with Santa Clara County Sheriff's in 2005, then again, war in the woods goes into in depth. And I referenced it a lot in hidden war. And that was when we were ambushed in the Silicon Valley foothills on August 5th, 2005, where my partner warden was shot by an AK 47, mm-hmm. um, through both legs, almost died on the hill that day. Um, waited three hours for an air rescue to get him off the hill. And by the good graces, he survived that ordeal. And when that happened, uh, we knew right away that if we were going to stay in this game and I certainly felt we should have, um, I was trying to convince our administration, our command staff, our chiefs, if you will, that if we're going to stay in this game, we're going to have to do it better. We're going to have to do it with better equipment, with the right men and or women. Um, and we're going to need the right dogs. We're going to need the right resources, training, tactics, advanced equipment. And we're going to have to handle this like a SWAT or tactical unit, if you will, um, just like the other agencies that are involved do. It was the only way to tackle this safely. How... <clears throat> When it comes from a, a standpoint of people, game wardens in the field, how underprepared or understaffed do you believe y'all were at that time? Uh, very much so. Very much so. I mean, fortunately, I come from, I'd say, one of the one of the three or top five most progressive game warden states 
in the nation. Uh, California, we have a lot of resources. We have a lot of diversity. So we have a lot of teams doing a lot of specialized work. Um, and I, I can't speak highly enough of our California game wardens from that agency. Uh, Florida, Texas, and some other states have similar units like um, the Special Operations Group, the SOG units out of Florida, um, are a specialized tactical dedicated unit. Um, they have several in the, in the big state of Florida. And for California to take that jump, it, it seemed like natural, a natural progression. Um, but again, we are the thin green line and we're very thin. So out of approximately 400 officers in California, let's say through the late two thousands, you're looking at, uh, you're looking at patrol function. You're looking at Marine patrol. You're looking at, uh, undercover commercial wildlife sales. Uh, you know, we're now looking at internet wildlife sales, crimes, um, general patrol, education and outreach, training at the academy. And now all of a sudden you have to, or you want to develop a marijuana enforcement team and make a specialized unit that, that the department hasn't seen before. It's a big ask. We left patrol. And so we left, you know, uh, traditional patrol functions. We, you know, left partners that relied on us. Um, you know, you're kind of, you know, stealing Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And until you can backfill those patrol positions with new bodies or create more positions and hire more wardens, which has always been an uphill battle for us in California, like all state game warden agencies, conservation agencies seem to deal with all over the nation, um, something's gonna gonna you know something's gonna take an impact. Yep. And certainly, we felt that the first couple of years when we formed Met. However, we are definitely making a bigger environmental protection dent, hands down forming the Met team and having those of us that went to the Met team dedicated to it, doing our best work, I feel, versus what we were doing in patrol. And not to belittle or negate how important general patrol is in districts, um, but that's something that, you know, you can kind of fill and flow with. You can bring people in from outside of the area. When it, when it comes to doing specialized Met work, you really can't. You kind of have to have the guys that are trained to do it, that want to do it, and are a good fit. And that's just like like a military or a law enforcement special operations group, you know, it's not cut out for everybody and not everybody wants to do it because of the rigors. So we had growing pains getting there, as I described in hidden war internal and external politics, but by the second year, um, and that would have been 2015 ish, uh, it was definitely quote unquote paying for itself. And not only was our agency taking notice, but agencies all over the West coast and, and across the country, actually, were starting to see the impacts because not only were we doing the work, but we were capitalizing on the outreach and education component that we did through wild justice as, a, as an example, or through the publishing of my first book, war in the woods, starting to put that message out there nationally starting to talk about it at conventions and meetings and conferences and trying to share that message with the rest of the country. So people were seeing the problem for one thing, but if they were experiencing the problem in their state, they had a better way to deal with it because we had gone through a lot of growing pains in California dealing with the cartel trespass cannabis issue. And we'd certainly made a lot of mistakes getting there. And the cool thing about the books that, you know, have come out now and, I think hidden more, especially now, because it's become such a hot issue nationally is it's a template to share our experiences and let other agencies and other States just know that you guys can save a lot of growing pains and save a lot of mistakes and failures that we went through by looking at this ahead of time, you know, that we just didn't know. Cause we were kind of doing it for the first time. We were kind of pioneering it, if you will. 
How sophisticated and complex are these drug cartel grow ops? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and the short answer is very, mm-hmm. very complex. Uh, you got to remember and you, you got to respect the business model of the, tr- of the cartels um, out of Mexico. And you can't ever, uh, you know, under, underestimate what these guys are capable of doing and how organized and smart their operations are. Um, we want to remember that these cartel groups are not only, you know, coming from Mexico, bringing product from Mexico, operating in Mexico, but they're across our border. They're embedded throughout not only the West Coast, but the entire nation. They have operatives, tens of thousands, if not more operatives all over the country. And these guys are highly skilled and they're here for good reason. So they, you know, operate thousands and thousands of trespass grow sites all over the country. Um, you know, 25 to 27 other states besides California. And they do it under the radar and on private and public uh, pristine lands. And they make a ton of profit money and it's all money driven. Um, The other thing to remember is these same cartels, Sam, are not only doing tainted weed production on trespass sites, but they're also trafficking in humans. They're part of the, the sexual, you know, and child trafficking rings. They're producing the new synthetic heroin fentanyl Mm -hmm. in dirty labs, not only in America, but also Mexico and distributing that all over the country. That's killing thousands, especially in your part of the country. Um, We're starting to see gun running operations from these cartel groups. We're starting to see the lookalike prescription sedate, uh, you know, painkillers, but they're coming out of dirty labs where one pill could be just like a legitimate prescription for a surgery recovery. And the next pill could kill you in minutes. Um, so these guys are involved in everything and their distribution network is solid and they work under the radar. They know law enforcement's game. They know how to distribute it. And if they're not, you know, distributing it within the country and producing it within the U S then they're still producing it in Mexico and they're bringing it across the border through tunnels. They're bringing it off the shorelines from the Pacific ocean side with panga boats. And now with the unprotected border being so much more unprotected and kind of wide open under the new administration, um, they have literally no hindrance from trafficking people or operatives or getting product across our Southern borders as we, as we share this conversation today. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to see where our border condition is right now, especially as it relates to poisoning America's public with all of these toxic, these toxic crimes. And, you talk about it a lot, but talk about the poison that they were putting on these plants and how it affects wildlife and even humans that were consuming that marijuana where the poison had been on. Yeah. Um, these poisons were, you know, developed, uh, in America actually in the forties and fifties, um, and, and, and bottled for legitimate agriculture back then. And one 12 to 16 ounce container of Furidan or Carbofuran or Metafos, or there's multiple different trade names, was, was designed to be diluted with four to 5,000 gallons of water before it was put on as a pesticide or an insecticide uh, on, you know, uh, edible, edible plants, crops, if you will. Well, <laughs> what the Cardells do is they use this stuff uh, in the big bottles and they don't dilute it very much at all. And they have to get it in Mexico because the EPA started to do some solid, solid studies 20 years ago and found out that even diluted at that, you know, legitimate or prescribed, um, you know, mix, mixture, it was still too toxic for human consumption and had too many byproducts. And 
active ingredients in these uh, pesticides, which are anticoagulants. They're basically nerve agents, nerve toxins. Um, you know, they, these were some of the ingredients that the Nazi used way back in the forties and uh, the mid forties for their biological weapons. This stuff is really, really nasty. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't kill quickly. Um, well, I'm sorry, it does kill quickly, but it, it kills very painfully. And so the animals we see dead in these grow sites, 400 pound black bears, mountain lions, mule deer, uh, you know, threatened and endangered uh, bighorn sheep, um, you know, every uh, gray fox, songbirds, raptors, golden eagles. We have seen so many animals dead in these grows. And then animals that have eaten off of those animals dead in the grows because just the skin and just the bodies of the contaminated animal was enough to kill another animal that would feed in the food chain, you know, on that first uh, poison critter, so to speak. So, and knowing that this poison is in the soil in a grow site, it's on the plant itself. Like you mentioned, it's on the flower and the bud product that's being smoked. It's being, you know, uh, broken down into concentrated cannabis. Um, even the leaves that are going to go to CBD, the non THC, you know, cannabis, uh, derivatives for pain relief and anti-inflammatory, uh, you know, uses it's going to be on that. If this stuff does make it into, uh, the black market, which it all does. Um, that's how nasty this stuff is. And uh, knowing that after a couple of days, you know, the white splotches and kind of the opaque sheen that you see when this stuff is applied to a marijuana plant, either a flower or a leaf, um, dries up and becomes invisible and you can't even tell the plant is contaminated. How do you tell unless you test it? So from the standpoint of people running across this stuff in the woods, us running across it as officers, you know, without protective equipment or even with protective equipment, the, the effects could be deadly and they often, oftentimes are. Wow. And that's, so do you see, do you see more environmental damage coming from the poisons or say like the diversion of water or is it equal both? You know, it's, that's a good question. And I would say equal, I would say, um, water is kind of, you know, I call water, water is the, the platinum of the future. You know, we're, just came out of the biggest drought we've seen in California around my retirement time uh, from operations. I'm going to say 2017, 2018, uh, you know, and when water starts to get scarce, whether it's scarce or not, we have so many people on the, on the planet now and so much need for water that uh, any water that's even slightly diverted and not going to the right place or that's contaminated or poisoned with these EPA banned poisons, the impacts are catastrophic and they're exponential. Um, so the impacts of the waterways are really what seem to get the attention of our administrators, our politicians to say, Hey, wait a minute, what are we doing on this cartel grow front? What is really happening here? What do we do to protect our water? Uh, and that happened back in 2014, 2015 in California, when we were in the, you know, the, the peak years of forming met, um, we were in our biggest drought in California's history in a, in a century. And when our scientists could finally quantify that the cartel's conservative estimate, and this is probably a very low number, but between 2014 and 2015, the cartels basically diverted and stole 1.3 billion gallons of California's pristine water in our worst drought in a century. So we literally had, you know, Native American tribes living on tribal land in Northern California, Humboldt County, turning on their water faucets and not getting water to drink because so much water had been diverted out of these rivers that they thrived off of. Uh, from cartel grows. That's huge, huge, you know, and you know, the rest of the, not only the country, but the rest of the world, buddy, we're, we're 
you know, I was getting biologists and, and press groups from England and from Spain and from Central Europe getting in contact with us and saying, can we come over? Can we follow you around? Can we do a story on water diversions related to, you know, illegal cannabis production? Because they were looking at regulations all over Europe of regulating cannabis in, in nations that didn't have it. And they were thinking ahead. They were looking at California as an example as being kind of the weed weed center of the world, given the Mediterranean climate we have in the Golden State and, and the great water we normally have in California and going, wait a minute, we need to, we need to look at this mm -hmm. before we start to regulate and realize that this water, our water is going to be excessively tapped and probably tapped a little too hard by the black market if we don't do this right. Live Life in Motion is brought to you by CBDMD. I am very pumped to have CBDMD as a partner. They are the most legitimate CBD company out there. All their products are THC free. They're all third party tested. Really, they're trusted by a lot of the best athletes in the world. I've used CBD for a long time and their products at CBDMD are simply the best. I love their gummies. Really, there's a lot of uses for CBD. I like to use it for sleep and really any type of recovery. Um, it really can help inflammation. So go to their site, cbdmd.com, look up some products and use promo code LIVE25 at checkout and you will save 25% off your order. So it's a pretty darn good deal. Go to cbdmd.com, use promo code LIVE25 at checkout, and start living healthier. How? <clears throat> so let's go back a little bit to 2005, and you do the raid with your partner, and he's, you know, the, unfortunately gets injured and shot. How quickly after that, or how long after that, did you feel comfortable having a team that you felt was prepared to go in and take care of these grow ops? Yeah, it since we didn't have our own team for another oh man. Well, we got we started a pilot program with Mint in 2013. So if you do the math and subtract 2005 from that, it was several years out, close to another 10 years, about 8 years later, right? So um or or even longer. The the problem was the sheriff's department was already very advanced and they learned when we learned and we learned together. So I felt within Within a year of that shooting in 05, we had a very solid team, but it was not our own team. It was an allied agency team with uh, great operators, great supervisors, John Spagnola, Craig Dybert, uh, you know, all, all the guys that, that kind of, you know, took us on as equals um, that we, uh, that I mentioned in the book, uh, especially in War in the Woods and, and in Hidmore as well, um, that really helped get us where we needed to go to have the template to, to make our own team. Um, so certainly we in our little part of Silicon Valley, were good to go within about a year. We weren't at our best effectiveness though, because again, we didn't have the canine element that I talk about in the new book and canine Phoebe and handler Brian Boyd were pioneering the best canine tactics and becoming the most effective at apprehending these cartel growers that were very violent, uh, that wanted to do a lot of harm to us with knives, with sticks, especially with firearms and uh, when we started using that dog in other parts of the state with my, you know, basically my brothers in Santa Clara County with their sheriff's department um, and then moving around with Phoebe and Brian and starting to integrate um, and show what a great canine and a great handler could do on a team like that, um, that wildfire kind of blew up. 
And when we formed our own team and I had Brian and Phoebe on our team and we could go anywhere. He wasn't just mandated in Northern California. Then a lot of other agencies got to see what this dog and handler combination were all about and how to get the right dog and how to train with that dog for this very unique environment. Because something I talk about a lot that's so mind blowing about what Phoebe and Brian developed is look at the operating environment, Sam, you have, you're not in the city, you know, you're not totally in the mountains, but when you are in the mountains, most of the time for missions, um, it could be a half a mile hike. It could be an eight mile hike. It's probably going to be 90 to hundred degrees that day. You know, you're going to be way in the back country. Um, you're going to be in very brushy, very thick conditions. You're not going to be on even terrain. It's going to be steep. It's going to be unstable. It's going to be noisy. It's going to be dirty. Um, and for a dog to operate in those type of environments, um, you kind of got to be a little bit military war dog. You kind of got to be a little bit domestic, you know, uh, you know, law enforcement dog, and then you got to be something in between to target that particular, mm -hmm. that particular wildlife criminal. And it took about three years to really develop Phoebe into that, you know, well-oiled machine, if you will. I mean, we affectionately called her the fur missile as she's, <laughs> you know, quoted on, uh, uh, some of our documentaries, um, and definitely I call her the fur missile in the book and she was just amazing, but it took a long time to get there. And fortunately, again, I feel like we were able to go through those growing pains and make the mistakes we needed to make in the training development phase to, you know, find the right combination of what dog you want, how they need to be trained, how they need to interact with the handler and how that dog and handler need to interact with the team. Because one thing we developed is everybody on our met team could effectively handle Phoebe on a dog bite, could handle calling her on or off a dog bite, um, could help her, uh, could assist her, could back her up, could back Brian up. I mean, awesome. it's not, it's yeah. Right, buddy. It's not just relying on that dog and the handler to just drop in and do their job while we all watch, you know, we all watch them, you know, the magic of the moment happen um, when this dog saves lives and nobody gets shot, not bad guys, not, not good guys, you know, um, that was a real, real neat growing, you know, growing lesson for us and a highlight of my career and just a dream to see, but so neat to see so many other agencies on the federal level, Forest Service, BLM, local sheriff's departments, start to get dogs, start to integrate with us and then do that same work. And they're out there just, just kicking butt and, and doing great work now all over the country, especially on the West coast. Do you have a story that stands out for people to understand the importance of what Phoebe and what the dynamic dogs have bought, brought to your team? Yeah, I really do. And it's uh, it's the second chapter in Hidden War. And the reason that chapter's in there is it was a 2012 mission. It was right before we started the program. And it was the mission that finally, I think, was the tipping point for me to convince my administration, both Chief Nancy Foley and Chief Mike Carrion, that a team was necessary and dogs needed to be on the team. Because I had been working with Brian and Phoebe off and on for a couple of years on grow missions. In fact, we had filmed together while we were filming the wild justice TV program on cartel grows. And we were doing that in Santa Clara County and bringing Phoebe and Brian into the, the Santa Clara County Sheriff's met team operations. And we had had a lot of great work together, but we hadn't caught anybody in like a season and a half or two seasons of filming. And then we were done with the show. It's now 2012 and uh, myself and the new Met team leader, Sergeant John Spagnola and, and Hunter and I had found a grow site, stone's throw from where I grew up in Morgan Hill, as the crow flies maybe three miles at the most. 
And uh, we scouted it actually with my new uh, companion canine, Apollo. She was only six months old, yellow lab, not a bite dog, never going to bite anybody, just going to lick him to death, but you know, <laughs> great nose. And uh, she was going on kind of a tr little training mission. And, and uh, she actually smelled some stuff up ahead that day that warned us that we had that grow that we suspected. Um, we went back and did that grow about a month later and brought Phoebe down and um, without going too far in depth, because it's, it's documented really thoroughly in the, in the chapter. But essentially, I was Brian's canine cover, which means I was handgun armed, I was right on his tail, and I'm dealing with anything he can't deal with. Whether it's a suspect that Phoebe's having to bite apprehend, another suspect that might be wanting to bring harm to what we're doing with a, a suspect that might be under bite duress from, from a canine like Phoebe, or anything else Brian needs, because you know we have a saying on the team, when things get Western, things get crazy. Um, and, and Brian is one of these guys that is a canine handler, he's juggling like five balls and it's all a nanosecond response times needed or someone's not gonna go home safely. So we had two armed growers and when they approached us, they didn't give up and the guns were starting to come out and Phoebe deployed on one grower and got him down by biting him in the calf. And the other grower was pulling a Taurus judge, which is a big revolver that has a shotgun caliber and a pistol caliber all combined in the cylinder and coming out with that pistol. And Brian just said, John, take my dog. I got to deal with this guy hand to hand, or one of us is going to get shot. So he's going for that guy. Phoebe's got a bad guy down. This guy's struggling. And now I'm dealing with that guy um, and the dog. And we have riflemen coming up running behind us to support us, but they're a couple seconds behind us. Um, pretty good gap in space because we're so much faster when we're, you know, more lightly equipped with, with handguns and light packs on the canine side. Um, and sure enough, unbeknownst to me, that suspect had a Torkarov uh, automatic Russian pistol in his waistband on his belly. And he was belly down and he was struggling during the dog bite and going to pull that pistol and just starting to turn to put that pistol on me when I was able to dive onto his back, take him down, see the pistol come out of his hands, realized right then had Phoebe not been on that dog bite with this bad guy, when that pistol was pulled, I'm having a gunfight from me to the computer screen. I'm literally two, three, four feet max from this guy. And I'm, you know, already in motion of, of diving on him. And that's how fast and how crazy it can get. And then I've got two AR 15 armed riflemen, two M four operators behind me. Uh, you know, now they're probably 10 yard or 10 feet behind me when the, all this is happening. So if I'm not taking fire, they're taking fire too. So that was a testament to Phoebe truly saving my life personally in real time that I got to witness and experience as well as hear all the stories of how many times she had done it up in Northern California on other operations Brian had been involved in. And then fast forward to, uh, you know, talking to my administration about what had just happened and getting the green light the, the very next season to start the pilot program for the marijuana enforcement team. And in six years of operations that I led that team before retirement, I mean, I can't even count on two hands. Um, it was, it was 20 plus times. And that's probably a low number of how many times Phoebe saved my life personally and, and, and the lives of everybody around me on the team, my teammates, my brothers and allied agency guys that had, you know, worked on that, worked in operation and met Phoebe that day for the first time and went, Oh my gosh, look what she just did. We almost, we avoided another gunfight narrowly. So yeah, yeah, brother, it, I, I can't, I cannot overstate how important she is to being a lifesaver, how important canines like her are 
to being lifesavers. And, um, and that day really solidified it. And, and that's why I think that chapter is most gripping because it's in the beginning of the book. People read it and go, oh my gosh, are you kidding me right now? And then you see all the inner workings and, you know, and, and kudos to her admin at the time that in a, you know, in a very politically controversial, you know, mindset in California at the time that we were able to form this team up because I still look back on, on how it all played out. And I'm quite frankly amazed. And I feel really blessed and lucky that we, uh, that we put it together. And so we're all safe because of it. Mm-hmm. Dogs are amazing. It's so darn smart. What, um, how many gunfights have you been involved or involved in on some of these missions? Yeah, our, our team as a whole, um, up until I retired at the end of 2018, um, I had been involved in, in six, you know, um, either, uh, the first one obviously was, I think the, the biggest eye opener because that's when my partner was shot. Um, that's when I had to counter engage a suspect and was in a gunfight as well as some of our sheriff's deputy, uh, partners that later became, you know, team brothers, if you will, forever. Mm-hmm. And we worked wonderfully together until, we all, you know, moved on to retirement or other assignments. Um, but the, the remaining gunfights that happened, um, none of us were hurt. And the cool thing about those, um, those incidents, because there's nothing good about them, but the positives, if you will, is that training and tactics and, and, and better focus on, on what we were exposed to, better knowledge, allowed us to come home a lot safer on those operations. Um, the very last gunfight I was personally involved in um, was with, uh, you know, uh, Brian Boyd and, and his new canine that I talk about in Hidden War. It's the last, second to last chapter in Hidden War, where, again, a canine, you know, making a bite and diverting a gun from a handgun armed grower that's wanting to do harm to us. And he has the tactical uphill advantage coming down on us um, in an early morning grow operation. And uh, we came out unscathed on that one. Uh, fortunately the team, uh, up till now, um, there's, there's been, um, we've had, you know, several other officer involved shootings on the California fish and wildlife officer front. Um, we haven't had met, uh, one in a met grow site per se, um, in the last couple of years since I left the team, um, they've had a lot of close calls, but again, the reason they haven't had gunfights is because of our dogs being so well honed. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you through COVID last year, and uh, what they're already anticipating this year, having uh, been in touch and helping train other other teams with my old teammates recently, it's mind blowing to see how enhanced right now the cartels have become since COVID and since the new border policy. Um, it, it's it's kind of the wild west out there, you know. No exaggeration. We're seeing more AR-15s. We're seeing more grow sites. We're seeing these guys more comfortable in the woods, like they own the woods. Mm-hmm. They seem to think since, you know, immigration control is lifted and the borders are open and, uh, you know, COVID is, has either redirected law enforcement, even what a thin green line conservation officer, wildlife, wildlife law enforcement to so many other areas of civil unrest of, you know, COVID protocol safety and things like that, that they're just not going to get caught out there. So they're going crazy. Um, the cartels are, you know, work under a culture and they thrive and any type of chaos we have internally in this nation, because they're going to, they're going to foster because of it. And they certainly are, but uh, knock on wood and, and, and uh, you know, God willing, we don't have any more uh, gunplay, but we haven't up to this point um, be, largely because of the tactics and the dogs. Yeah. The training and, and the tactics, the dogs, what, um, 
how complex are these grow sites? Like how, what will these cartels go through to like get one of these grow sites going? You know, if they, if they have good water, they'll go through anything to make it work. Um, they're experts at diverting water, sometimes two to three miles or further, um, putting gravity fed, you know, uh, water lines to fortify a grow and water that thing that could be five, 10, 15, 20,000 plants for six, seven, eight months at a time. Um, not too many farmers can pull that off in a remote area without power, you know, without wells without, you know, big diversion pumps. And these guys nine times out of 10 do it with no electricity, no assisted, you know, uh, devices. They do it simply by diverting a Creek, putting big check dams together by hand, uh, and doing it at such an elevation. It doesn't have to be a very steep elevation, but just enough to start a gentle downhill flow of water through this, through their black poly pipe and build up pressure from gravity and it is amazing how well they can irrigate. It's amazing how well they know their particular strain of cannabis, how long it has to be planted, how to tend it, especially in an outdoor environment in the woods, you know, where you do have wildlife, you do have rodents, you do have insects, you have patch pirates from other cartel groups, you have law enforcement, you can run across the hunter, the angler, the outdoor recreationalist, and how they camouflage these grow sites is mind blowing. Their field craft is, is top notch. And again, do not underestimate it. Don't take it lightly. Um, we see camouflage on their equipment, in their grow sites, on their water lines, stuff covered up with natural terrain, uh, hidden hooches, hidden uh, kitchen areas, hidden encampments that until you're 10 feet away from them, you don't even see what you're walking into. Um, their field craft rivals anything I've seen on not only our sniper team, but any tactical unit that uses snipers and uses field craft and camouflage and concealment. Um, I, I have nothing but I'm in awe of some of the camouflage and some of the field craft I see these guys exercising in the woods. And for that reason, consider them the most formidable enemy that we would fight on the wildlife law enforcement side. Are we, are we making any progress once we capture some of these guys and trying to figure out where this is coming from? Is there, you know, one main cartel, who are the main cartels who's leading this from, from Mexico or, and coming up to the United States? Yeah, we're starting to make headway because um, if you follow any any of the news in Mexico right now, um, there is there's a lot of upper level cartel plaza bosses and people even level than the plaza boss level, you know, the higher ups, if you will, running operations um, of numerous cartels, faction cartels like new Gen the new generation cartel, the new Sinaloa cartel, and there's a there's a bunch of others that have popped up recently within the last five to ten years. Um, the Mexican authorities are catching people. They're catching higher ups. We're catching higher ups, you know, in, in our nation um, because we're working this not only for trespass cannabis, we're working this on the human trafficking side. Mm -hmm. We're working this on the narcotics trafficking side. So DEA and uh, we had a, a, a special agent in charge and a buddy of mine, Bill Bodner, on our Thin Green Line podcast uh, through COVID last year, talking with us about the trends they're seeing nationally based out of the LA office, but as it, you know, translates to the rest of the country of what a priority this is for DEA. So we're starting to make a dent. Yes. Are we stopping it by no means? Um, are we pushing back the tide? Yes. Um, are we, you know, extensively challenged? Like I mentioned earlier in, 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 in this conversation with 
you know, border policies that flood the borders that, uh, you know, overwhelm our border agents that, you know, kind of, kind of denude, if you will, what we're trying to do. That's a huge issue. Are we going to stop? Uh, heck no. Are we going to, you know, continue to do our best and, and fight the fight? Yes, we are. Um, are we going to be a little less effective this next year? Um, yeah, we are just by sheer numbers. You know, if you do the ratio, we might make as many, if not more cases, but we're certainly going to have more of the problem because we're going to have more of the criminality in the country freely. And we're going to tax our law enforcement resources more because of the flood. Uh, and you're just not going to get to it all. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's sheer, it's, it's a, you know, attrition who's going to outproduce, who's going to outman the, you know, the other side and, and they, they, they're, they have that advantage. And that's just a, a hard reality we got to face moving forward. What can we do? What can citizens do in all parts of the country to, to help you guys out? You know, the biggest thing is spread the message. You know, I, I often say um, the pen is mightier than the sword. And as much as I miss, you know, pushing a carbine and running with my team and fighting this head on, um, I think we're doing more good by doing what I'm doing with you right now and having the opportunity to talk with you about it and for your listeners and viewers to understand what's going on out there, to understand it's in their backyard, to understand um, it, it's not just cannabis. If they don't have anything to do with the outdoors, that it's, it's on every level and that it's really a poisoning of America from within, from a foreign invader, um, to understand that if you're a cannabis user, uh, in a legitimate legalized state, you know, we, we don't have any, we, there's not an anti-cannabis message on any level in either book. And people sometimes say I'm mistake hidden more because they see a cannabis leaf on the front and think, oh, great, this is another war on drugs. Norris is talking about how bad cannabis is. And that's not the case at all. The case is this is an anti-environmental crime pro-public safety book for the sake of America and American citizens. And that's it. So um, educating kids, especially that this is going on. Uh, not to be complicit in a black market of tainted weed and not to consume that stuff if you're experimenting as a kid or you're a medical patient, um, where your cannabis is coming from. Um, understand that you can help spread the message and you can help support marijuana enforcement teams. You can help support the thin green line of conservation groups that are trying to you know, rectify the problem. I'm an advisory board member for a new foundation that popped up a couple of years ago called CROP, Cannabis Removal on Public Lands. And we work hand in hand with our federal and state legislatures on just increasing funding and education and awareness for the reclamation and cleanup of grow sites. Because even in California with a dedicated team, we're only able to reclamate about 44% of the growth sites we, uh, we eradicate or do arrests in. And other states don't have this problem to the magnitude California does, but 25 plus other states have this going on and very close to you, probably in your state actually. So reclamation money, reclamation training, how to deal with poison growth sites safely and go through the hazmat you know, removal protocol. All of that is critical and just being aware of the issue and helping out by either funding committees or promoting um, more teams like ours, more law enforcement um, dedication to this particular problem and pressuring your, uh, your, your legislatures really helps. Is there, do you have any resources that you find are, are best for people to go into or look at or fund or help give money to? Uh, I think crop is a great one. The one I'm involved in um, because it focuses just on this problem and there aren't too many, well, there aren't any other uh, groups that I know of directly 
um, to donate money to that are dealing just with that. So it, uh, it you know, um, cannabis removal on public lands on, on Instagram, their crop project USA, all one word crop project USA. Um, and certainly if any of your listeners or viewers want more information, just direct message me on Instagram, go through my website, John Norris, J O H N N O R E S.com link to my email. And, uh, you know, you can certainly reach out that way. I think hidden war and more in the woods are both really, really good reference points, uh, hidden war, especially because it's very recent. The, you know, my publishing group was amazing and putting a big color section of pictures in the middle to show what the poisons look like, show the dead wildlife, show the team in action. And there's a, and the end of the book in our appendices extra section has the actual science on water loss. It has the science on what these poisons do to wildlife. It has a demographic of the nation, not only California, um, that legislatures actually are using right now as a reference. Um, and you know, I've been, uh, called into, um, you know, national panels for the Senate on public lands threats and talking to our Senate on this, um, getting ready to talk to our new federal and state congressman out of California on the issue as it's affected now post COVID. So, um, hidden war is a great template and it's not just a, it's not a push for the book so much. It's a push for what we have inside it and the message if people want it as a reference and certainly can use that as, a tool, a tool to open a conversation. Um, it's what I use a lot to talk to a lot of uh, school groups, like whether it be high school assemblies, college students in environmental science, whatever, or legislatures or law enforcement, or, or, you know, just American conservation groups all over the country on what you, what's out there and what you need to be aware of and how you can help stop it. Awesome. And I'll make sure to put all those links to the books, to your website, to crop, all that type of stuff in the show notes too. So hopefully people can appreciate that get educated more is, you know, as we're wrapping up here, I cannot tell you how gracious I am for you coming on. And I just feel fortunate. You took some time to talk to talk to me today. Is there any last message you want to, you want to give to give to the listeners? Uh, Just, I appreciate people listening. Um, Please take this story. And if you're moved by it, Go tell 10 people or 20 people or 30 people or whoever you can. Um, certainly, if you can follow me on you know, my website, which is, like I said, johnnorris.com. My YouTube page is just the John Norris channel. Check out my YouTube page. Subscribe to it because it has all the investigative news pieces that we did with Fox, with NBC, with Dan Rather, with CNN. Um, it has multiple documentaries we did for Sportsman's Channel and NRA TV of us in grow sites. Um, the war in the woods documentary that's about 26 minutes long that actually highlighted our met team in 2016 um, in multiple grow sites and training and puts all of this into numbers and quantifies it is pretty mind blowing. That's on my, uh, my YouTube channel. Um, I host a film series called the thin green line for recoil TV. That's also on my YouTube channel that goes into some of the stuff we've done on the Southern border, not only for legitimate conservation hunting stories, but what we're seeing on the unprotected border right now of the cartels at that, that level and what they're doing to the Southern border before they get up to say California forest or into South Carolina, North Carolina, or wherever we, we talk about in the country. So certainly check that out. And on Instagram, I'm at just John Norris, J O H N N O R E S. And you can hit me up there and follow for all the latest updates. And honestly, as you know, uh, the social media world uh, has to be very quick. So a lot of my stuff gets on social media for updates of what's happening and what events and what training's coming up. 
or uh, new trends before they make it to the website or any of my TV work. But between all those different avenues, you get a pretty good update of this problem and what we're doing to fight it firsthand on the thin green line front. Yes, sir. Well, John, thank you again so much for coming on. Maybe we could do it again and get some updates in a year or so, but I just really appreciate you taking the time. Sam, this is great. Thanks for having me on, and I'd be glad to do an update. Anything I can do to help, just uh, reach out anytime. Look forward to working with you. All right. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.